Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guest as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Ray. I'm delighted to have you here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with me today. Uh, you, this is one of several... Con- today is my podcasting day I between classes and, uh, and not traveling with clients, so uh, you're one of several conversations. I'm warmed up with a nice... Cup of this is probably cup number three, so uh, so I am on my toes and ready for a great conversation, uh, Ray. Before we dive into uh, whatever topic you have in mind, how about we just uh, ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Oh, good. Thank you, thank you, Jason, for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've heard a lot about your podcast over the years, and so I'm excited to be on. Uh, I am the founder and CEO of a company called I Donate, where a SaaS based platform for uh, fundraising solutions based in Dallas. And um, as we say, our mission is to take advanced technology and try to amplify good. You know, there's a lot of good that's a lot of great stuff that's going on in the nonprofit world today. And a lot of organizations are doing a lot of good, but we sort of believe deep down in, in our soul, if you will, that if you apply technology in the right way, you can really amplify the good that's already being doing, that's already being done today. Yeah, Ray, you said you're in Dallas, um, and I don't think I have ever had the privilege of asking anyone this, but um, you probably can help me uh, unravel this. So I started in my fundraising career about 25 years ago, and um, I'm guessing you're familiar enough with the sort of the landscape that's happening there in Dallas to sort of maybe give me some insight in why it seemed like there was a lot of technology and a lot of, we'll just call it leadership that was sort of coming out of Dallas 
20 years ago. You know, I think about a number of sort of the people that are perhaps in seats like yours um, and also in sort of the general consulting seats and that sort of stuff. Is there a particular reason why that might be the case, say, two, you know, two decades ago, why Dallas was sort of one of those hubs? Well, I think there's always been an emphasis to diversify away and particularly in Texas from just being dependent upon oil and gas. And there was a pretty intentional effort to bring in more and more tech into Dallas, you know, the last two or three decades. Uh, you know, you had pillar companies like Electronic Data Systems, EDS, it was started by Ross Perot. It was pretty famous. And and that, that of course, that's a services company that does sort of outsourcing kind of services. And then in the 90s, we had a huge wave of um, telecom companies. We became really, you know, we had a telecom corridor here in, in, in Dallas. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, you have a lot of that professional talent. I think it leans a little bit more toward service and consultancy, whereas you see, you know, you still see a lot of sort of the startup vibe in that environment in places like Austin, where you see a lot of the entrepreneurs down there. Yeah. 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 I just remember that. Uh, I remember heading to, uh, you know, various different fundraising conferences or something. And it was usually uh, uh, it was it was there was a lot of people hailing from Dallas. So, um, Ray, we always ask our guests to come on here with a big idea, bold opinion. And then depending on how big and how bold that opinion is, we just let the conversation sort of emerge from there. Uh, so and we always let our listeners uh indirectly i guess you could say uh gauge just how bold it might be sometimes i get feedback and sometimes people in your seat get feedback on how big and bold our ideas are so uh what do you got for us today well as i mentioned in the opening our mission is to use advanced technology to amplify good but if you if you kind of take that up one level and go back to our purpose when we started i donate um and you you've heard and i've, I've heard in some of your other podcasts you referenced the the stubborn two percent idea and and yeah. when I when I first started I donate, um, I came from a venture capital background, so I sort of looked at this industry like a venture capital would, capitalist would look at it. And when I was doing my research, I came across that. And you know, not only have we been stuck at two percent for probably four decades in terms of personal disposable income, but it also mirrors you know sort of GDP. And I and I just kind of became obsessed with that number as to uh, you know how do we kind of move the two percent, if you will. And now being a technologist my whole life, I don't think there's any silver bullet that says, you know, you buy some magic technology, even I donate and all of a sudden uh, we're going to solve the 2% issue. But what I, my big idea is I do think that if we can move giving from being a transaction to a practice, then you're really getting into this idea of how we can move the 2%. Technology is part of it. It's not the only part of it. But if we think about generosity as a lifestyle and a practice, much like we think about, you know, our health or whatever it is in our life, then all of a sudden technology becomes this enabler, like we see in consumer tech or in other, uh, other areas, to facilitating this practice of generosity. We're not going to solve that 2% just by making a fancier widget, a better CRM, a better fundraising platform, or optimizing emails or any of those kinds of things. Those are only going to do incremental improvements, and, and we're certainly all working hard to, to do that. But if you really want to get to disruption, you have to think about sort of moving away from this whole direct response, transactional mindset into a practice or a lifestyle mindset. 
I remember I read uh, Peter Thiel wrote a book a number of years ago called Zero to One, and he talks about technology. I've, I, I haven't talked about this, Ray, here on the podcast in probably 100 episodes, but I was talking about it a lot, and perhaps sometime around the pandemic and prior to that. But what, what Thiel talks about in his book is he talks about two different types of technology, and maybe this would be a good way to sort of frame up sort of the direction we go with the conversation, because I, I sort of know where you're going. I think I know where you're going. But he talks about the difference between competitive versus complementary technologies. And I, and I, think, I think part of the challenge is that we're up against in the fundraising space is that we just have all these competitive technologies, which are basically trying to do the job for us. And rather than complement the work that really, when you think about it, to, bu- to get a budge on that 2%, we need complementary technologies, which is to say we need technologies that will help the fund because ultimately, and, and I, and I, I teed this up in my first book too. The difference between what I call the initial and the subsequent gift. I say, I say, forget the forget the size of the gift, the nature of the gift. Forget about forget about everything. Just say you got the initial gift and all the subsequent gifts. We can't seem to get to that subsequent gift, but that subsequent gift Ray seems to hinge on that complementary type that te- technology that uh, that Teal talks about. You follow what I'm saying? No, I think you're exactly right. I think what you know. The other sort of analogy or metaphor we could use is, you know, Hamill's book about blue oceans. You know, all of us sit here and just fight cutting each other up, you know. Yes, yes. You know, is my is my CRM, you know, better, faster, cheaper or have some whiz bang thing or is my fundraising solution better, faster, cheaper? I mean, we're all we're all stuck in this cycle of saying I have more features than you do. And we're not we're not looking at the donor as a life cycle, meaning. If you if you think about it, almost like from a consumer tech standpoint, there's a discovery, there's a point of consideration, there's a point of giving or a point of purchase, and then there's this advocacy piece that you're, you're kind of getting to of how you get, kind of get to that subsequent gift and that long-term relationship. And what you want to do is build technology around that life cycle, not not just technology like you said that's competitive or just uh, it, it's got it has to embrace I think the donor uh, to do it really really well. Well, some of this, Ray, you know, I haven't talked to, I haven't had a tech guy on the, on the podcast in a while, but about nine months ago, about nine months ago, I had a conversation and, and I was pretty forthright about an opinion in which, which, is, which, I'm, which I'm usually pretty good about. Um, and I got in a little bit of trouble with it for, um, in some fundraising circles, because I basically said that four out of five, four out of five fundraisers hide behind the technology. They utilize the technology to basically avoid the lunch table and the more meaningful conversations that lead to those more. So they're, they're basically hiding behind the technology. They're using technology as a way to, to basically not have to get to that subsequent gift. And I wonder, I wonder if, uh, if mavericks like me, people who say bold shit like that, Mixed with people like yourself, you know, if we got out there and said, look, folks, you've got to stop, you know, sort of hinging your professional expertise on what I'm capable of and and start taking people out to lunch. Yeah. Look, we can't replace the relationship or we can't replace even sort of the why people give, you know, whether it's what motivates the heart or, or, you know, your aspirational side of you to give. We can't do that. And, And you're right. We can't replace the art of fundraising with technology, but we can come along to your word complimentary 
and build technology around that the right way that enables that and and and, and supports how the fundraiser thinks and works and lives as, as well as the donor. So I, I agree with you. I mean, we're not we're not a silver bullet. And you're right. A lot of people look for shiny objects and they look for widgets and they hope that this is going to solve all their problems. And that's not what technology does. Technology is more an enabler. It's not a it's not a silver bullet. But is there anybody is there anybody in the tech space or perhaps that could be one of your uh, I'm thinking about talking to my students tomorrow about their competitive advantage in the class. And I'm thinking, you know, what if what if someone like yourself, what if a tech firm, I, I think I've posed this question to tech people before. Um, what 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 if what if a firm like yours started to sort of draw the line between that initial and that subsequent gift and you said look we're going to take care of the initial gift a company like yours can get that initial gift or you and you in tandem with a myriad of other sort of tech companies can get that can get that initial gift and 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 how do we convey to the fundraiser look stay out of our space and we'll stay out of yours and quit being fascinated with what it is we're doing yeah, I, I think there's some, I think there's something there. Um, you know, kind of raising it back up to this bigger question of, I use this illustration all the time, and it's kind of fun. Is is sort of the the difference between an exercise bike and a peloton? You know, yeah. if you get on if you get on an exercise bike, it will do the job, right? It will get the first gift. Let's just let's just use your your idea here of getting that first. It'll process that transaction online really really well. What's the reality of an exercise bike, though? After two or three months, it becomes a coat hanger, right? <laughs> you, know, you, you, you have your clothes hanging on it. And so when you look at a Peloton as an example, and notwithstanding some of their, their challenges financially, but when you look at the sort of success of the Peloton, I looked it up. The average user uses it 22.7 times a month. So why is that? Well, because they've created an entire ecosystem around using that bike, you know, you know, from the trainers and the, and the feedback and it's created an ongoing habit. And, and so they've, they've used complementary technology. They've used community, they've used analytics um, and all these things to motivate and inspire you to engage in that bike 22.7 times a month. Whereas the exercise bike will get the transaction for you too. It'll just, it'll do the same thing. So, I think tech companies in this space have, have really got to move toward embracing this total sort of sort of complementary, to use your term, way of thinking about technology to create this ongoing habit or practice if we're really going to make a difference. Okay. Are we getting the – that's a very interesting uh, analogy there. It, it, it's too much of the focus – it's too much of the focus about getting the – donor onto the Peloton and that we actually need to get the, uh, the fundraiser on a Peloton? Well, I haven't thought about it that way, but, uh, I, you know, it's an interesting point you're raising. I'm, uh, it is, it is a two-sided coin. You're right. Because if we could get that, I mean, and I guess that's kind of what I mean by this idea of competitive versus complementary. I think we're spending so much time and we in the fundraising space are the one talking about this. We're always talking about the donor's experience. But I think about this. um, Again, this is something I put in that first book. The idea that the healthcare industry knows that the quality of experience for a patient is oftentimes 
a reflection of how long and how happy their nurses are, right? So if the nurses are happy and if the nurses stick around and they're well compensated, et cetera, et cetera, you don't really have to ask the patient about their experiences because the, uh, the, 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 the nurses, the nurses become sort of a proxy for that. Mm-hmm. Um, what if we could get the fundraisers on a Peloton? Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. Like you, I've, like you said, I've been obsessed with the donor experience side of it. I haven't looked at the other side of the coin, but it's an interesting idea. Yeah, I haven't thought about that in that way. Because my guess is your company is oriented towards the, do- the donor experience. Am I right? I mean, that's no essentially question. what. Yeah, no question. So, we're we're obsessed with the donor experience, and um, you know we're we're really really strong believers. If you get that right, and you you embrace some of these principles from consumer tech, like. You know, you know, you know them better than anybody, whether it's personalization or whether it's being intentional and relevant and thinking like an Airbnb or thinking like like, a, you know, Spotify or whatever it is. We can we can really improve that experience, reduce friction, uh, build trust at the point of giving, which is a huge problem. And technology can help with trust. I mean, yeah. You know, Apple does a pretty good job of that, right, with brand consistency. So. We can do all those things and we do those things really, really well. And by the way, our customers get almost three X the industry average in terms of in terms of uh, productivity with our with our technology. Yeah. But but you ask for a big idea. If we're going to really be disruptive and really move the dial. Yeah. We ha- we have to kind of move beyond just incrementalism into this idea of engagement around creating a habit or a practice. I, I'll give you one other quick illustration uh, just just to connect to. Yeah, is early on. I, I I tell this story all the time. I met somebody in Oklahoma City, and and her uh, nonprofit's job was to rescue women who had been trafficked, and she'd frequently go out to you know truck stops in Oklahoma City and meet the FBI and rescue these women and bring them back to her facility. And she had a process where she would rehabilitate the women over eighteen months or whatever. Well, you know, if you think about that. And, and you support that and believe in that, you should get a notification on your phone that a woman has been taken off the street. You should be able to give. You should be able to know that that $1,800 has been raised. It shouldn't require heavy infrastructure. It shouldn't require a nonprofit to go back and build an email campaign and do all this heavy stuff. It should just become part of our daily life that this organization I care about, just like my ESPN feed, notifies me that something happened. And I should be able to click and give to it. And I should be able to be notified of, you know, that that campaign of $18,000 or whatever has been made and she's been taken care of. And so I think sometimes we get we make this too hard and we get in our way a lot of times on some of these things. And um, I, I have a I have a theory that if we're going to really get to where we're thinking like a practice, we've got to get out of the heavy infrastructure mindset we have and and kind of get out of let the technology get out of the way a little bit well that that's that's i think um yeah that that i i've asked that a number of times in some of these qualitative what i call higher aspirations that the fundraising community um seems to want for itself we've been talking about a lot of this since the pandemic and the george floyd incident and some other things um that t- played out in 20, 2020 and we seem to have these higher aspirations and, and and i'm consistently asking sort of the question okay does someone like myself need to get out of the way 
um, or or is there a different type of role that we're supposed to play? And and I just sort of wonder if um, if technology companies could perhaps have a different um, if 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 you if you took a different posture. If you took a different posture, I, I, I think it's phenomenal that you bring up that Peloton idea. Um, how do you be the Peloton for sort of the fundraiser? Um, might be an interesting. Be, 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 because the goal, I, I, I wrote a blog recently and we kind of came up with this little catchy phrase about is our, this maybe speaks to your point a little better. Is our job really to be a fundraiser or is it to be a donor raiser? You know, is it donor raising or fundraising? And, and I and I did this kind of I've got an infographic that's coming out in a few days on it. And I did it kind of for fun, which is if you kind of walk through things like what's our goal? Is our goal to collect as much as we can this year or is our goal to build long term advocacy? You know, if we think about it from a donor raising standpoint, not a fundraising standpoint, is our is our, is our uh, channels is what the organization is comfortable with? Well, I'm comfortable, you know having you go to my website or should the channel be where the donor is? Should you be meeting the donor where they are? And so I walked through these seven or eight examples of contrasting the way we think as fundraisers and, and begging the question is, should we be think about ourselves as donor raisers, not fundraisers? The um, some of, some of what I, uh, Ray, I was reading some of the other stuff you were writing and, and, and this was some of what we talked about perhaps bringing up in our conversation. I, I think, I think we haven't clarified. And again, maybe this is this is something that the, the technology firms could actually help us clarify. I, I think the term donor is just too vague. And you've messed around with the idea. You've written about some of the notion of sort of how we approach donors and do we characterize? Do we characterize them or do we not characterize them as consumers? I I think we've got, and 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 to kind of get back to something you said a little while ago about the habits i think we've tracked for so long ray i think we've tracked so long on the assumption that the donor and the consumer are one and the same and if we could create if we could create environments where the donor relationship is more characteristic of citizenship i think we'd be better off i i don't disagree i think you make a great point when I, when I write, what I'm, what I'm really speaking to is this idea. We, we say that today's donor is, is also an empowered consumer. Yeah. What, I'm ref, what I'm referring to is the fact that they've been, whether we like it or not, they've been conditioned by hundreds of billions of dollars of spend on consumer technology. So they have this expectation when they go do something online, whatever that is, that their experience is going to be like pick one. Uber, yes, Amazon, right, Netflix, right, Spotify. right. So we can't get away from the fact that they are an empowered consumer and they have that expectation. And we have to speak into that or we'll have a frustrated supporter uh, or one that maybe lacks trust because the experience isn't the same way as it is somewhere else. So that's what I'm speaking into. But, you know, your, your point's a good one. I don't mean to, to put donors in the same camp as somebody who's just buying a shirt online. Uh, <laughs> that's not it. But but if you think about that and you carry that out, and my, my friend Tim Kachuriak at Next After talks about this all the time, is when we buy that shirt online, we get it in a box and we get to put it on and see if it fits. And so there's a fulfillment to that. You know, when you give, you don't always have that on the other side. And yeah, I'm and and we in tech, 
we at tech and we as fundraisers have to do a much better job of closing that loop and providing that sort of satisfaction you get from that from that uh, gift that you gave. Okay, so one of the things I've talked about with a couple of other guests, I can't remember. Uh, Tim was on here, I don't know, 25 episodes back. I'm trying to recall what that conversation – I always like to sort of interweave some of these conversations. <laughs> Seems like him and I talked a lot about The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, um, more, well, than anything, <laughs> more than anything. That's what he's. I think that's the theme for his neo show this year in Kansas City. Yeah. Right, right. I'm, I'm wondering if he's got the right. I, I, one of the things I'm concerned about is, is whether he's got the right read on who the actual Wizard of Oz was. So, because um, <laughs> the, the Wizard of Oz was a complete fraud, wow. and that's a lot of what we talked about. But the, uh, but Ray, the one of the things that sort of comes to mind is, is, is there are there examples of where technology. I, I think when you think about the consumer versus the citizen, sort of this spectrum, right? I think of citizen and consumer as sort of on a spectrum of the way that we sort of see ourselves in society today. Is there a way that maybe a company like yours could actually help the organization raise expectations? Because when I think of those consumer-like impulses, they tend to be very conditioned on low expectations. Like when I drive through the drive through as a consumer at McDonald's, my expectations of McDonald's and their expectations of me are pretty low. And whether this goes right or wrong, it's not going to it's not going to sort of alter the, you know, the course of history for either of us. And when I think about the dumb t-shirt that I order on Amazon, it's largely the same way. I mean, if I'm going to spend $25 on a t-shirt, even though I might be disappointed with the quality of that t-shirt when I get it, at the end of the day I'm probably not going to lose a lot of sleep on it. How could we perhaps utilize technology to move that expectation higher. When I think about that, going back to your Peloton example, does the, does the consumer who buys the Peloton actually have higher expectations of that product before that product even shows up in their living room? Yeah, I don't think there's any question. And, and I think there's an implicit expectation of, of more results as well. But I think you're raising a really powerful point. And I was sitting here trying to think when you were saying that, I don't think there's a lot of good good illustrations out there where where we that we could point to, even on the for profit side, where uh, you know you, you have some illustrations in maybe sort of the faith based world or advocacy groups where we've raised the profile of somebody who just gives something online to somebody being much more engaged or active. But I think that's an excellent point. I mean, raising the profile and raising the status, if you will of somebody who gives through technology, um, that, that's a contributor as well. I, okay, I, so I, I have to go and think about that one. One, one of the things I constantly see uh, people talking about, the statistic gets a little worse and worse every year, but they're basically saying that, you know, four out of five, right now it's kind of a going four out of five donors don't renew their support. So mm-hmm. what if we, what, how could technology enable us to perhaps better discern who that, that number one donor is and not raise expectations of those other four, but it seems to me like if we could raise expectations of that one donor that we know we're going to keep, like my guess is, and maybe your data could, maybe the the stuff that you're doing, maybe your firm could help me prove this, and I'm sure our friend over uh, Tim could help us prove this, but does that one donor also generally give a slightly larger gift, for example? Like if the uh, if the four that we're not renewing tend to be 
somewhere in the range of a uh, $25 to $100. But that one gift that we do renew tends to be $135. Why aren't we just aiming for more of those $135 donors? Well, I think it's a good point. I mean, if you take another for-profit example, it's, you know, the, you know, the old adage, it's always cheaper to keep an existing customer than it is to find a new one. And, and you're right. I mean, you would think that's basic blocking and tackling as we'd focus on the ones that are, that are loyal to us or that are, are bought in or engaged. And, and sure, we have the data that shows that. And, and we have the ability to provide data to the nonprofit to target those. But I mean, walk that out for a second so we can give people reports and notifications and whatever it is they're going to have. But you're still dependent upon the fundraiser to take action with that and do something with that single donor you referred to. What do you, okay, right. What do you want the fundraiser? So you give them that report. If, if there was a way for your company to give your client a report that says, here's our guess on who that one out of the five is, we're going to show you who the, who the one out of the five most likely to be your loyal donor is, what would you then expect them to do? I know what I mean. Uh, let's just put that into some words here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, it's different for every nonprofit, but I mean, they they would put them through whatever nurture strategy they have. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, we, you know, we hear all these fancy words like like donor journeys and drips and all these things that tech do, right. does. But yeah. the reality of it is, you brought it up in the beginning. I, I don't. I don't. Some of these nonprofits. I don't know why they just don't pick up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's sometimes it's not complicated. You know, just especially when you have a major gift, you can. I mean, take one minute and just thank somebody on the phone. You you, you have no idea how much that does for somebody to get a phone call. Is recognizes them there that they're there but they want to put them in some sort of drip or do- donor journey or something like that and send them more emails and i i think that's sort of the opposite of what somebody wants i <laughs> think ray more emails <laughs> I, ray i think they want to turn around and expect and this is the critique i made in that first book i think the fundraiser wants you they, they want you to this is what happens and and again this is this is what i would love to have more guys like you uh communicating to these folks. I think you give them that list of the 20% of their donors who will be more most loyal, they're going to most of them are going to turn around and expect you to invent some new widget to you know that that supposedly creates some sort of distinct experience. And I think companies like yours know very well that's not really the way they need to be going because <laughs> that's not the business that you need to be in. They need to be in that business. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, fundraising is, is a, it's, it's a, it's an art. It's not just a, it's not just a discipline, but it's an art. And so it's a, it's a important practice. And, uh, but you're right. It, it is interesting is that they keep, they keep asking for more tools, more widget, more reports, more automation. And uh, uh, you're right. All I can say is you're correct. Okay, I don't want to be right, Ray. You're the. <laughs> this is that. Uh, well, is a- I want to. I want to go back to your point about the the four that didn't give. So let's use another illustration for fun, and let's say you yeah. know we're all on we're all on a health kick or whatever, and we're maybe we're dieting or maybe we're working out or something like that. And so I use these, these examples all the time. Is is some of these apps that are built for that? You know why do you know, or, or take just going and working out and maybe you have a trainer or whatever and you consistently go. I mean, why do you keep going back and why do you keep 
pressing on toward the goal? Well, it's because you're seeing the results. I mean, it's because it becomes a practice or a habit. Or if you pick up a guitar like behind me right now and you and you practice over and over again, things start sounding better. And so you see the results or you feel the impact of it. I don't I don't need somebody to send me more emails for for going to the gym if I'm seeing results and I'm seeing the, my body change or the weight come off. I don't need a giving Tuesday or a gym day to right. show up to the gym, right? And that's a whole nerd kick I get on is why do we need giving Tuesdays? But I don't need a gym day to show up to the gym because I'm seeing the impact of the results. When What nonprofits do poorly, I think, is do that, close that loop of really illustrating the impact of what the giver's making. And so I hear you on the four that didn't give the second gift, but I, I think we can get two or three to give the second gift if we just do that better. I think maybe we can. I think maybe we can. But I think that goes all the way back to your Peloton versus the exercise bike. Um, you know, who and, and, and who's getting who the Peloton is to being designed for, because I don't know. Um, I, I think some of the Ray, I think some of this line of thinking for me started many, many years ago, perhaps even before I was in fundraising. And it's the difference between, you know, somebody who buys a, you know, somebody buys a Toyota Camry versus buys a Lexus versus buys a BMW. I mean, you're talking about, in some cases, you're not really talking about a quality of a car that's all that different, but you're talking about distinctly different price points. And you're talking about, in some cases, you're talking about, or even just in the Toyota line, you're talking about a quality of a car that you're expected to drive you know, I, when I was a kid, there were Camrys that are still on the road today, right? Um, and and that, in some ways, that's that Peloton that you're talking about. But that's also that. It, here's it, you're referring to the guitars behind you. Is is are, is one of those guitars more more like you're talking about habits? Is one of those more likely for you to pick up just because you like to pick it up and you like to play it differently than the other one? Sure, sure. I mean. Th- I mean, because you, you're talking about habits, you're referring to habits and you're talking about somebody who wants to get on that Peloton multiple times, like almost like they get on it multiple times a day. Right. Um, and but but think about why they get on it, because there is a community aspect to that Peloton. The physical bike is not that much different than some of the great exercise bikes that are even made today. But there's a community aspect of it. Like I'm going to go sign on because I'm competing with my friend in Chicago, Illinois or, or Chicago or Chicago or, or Los Angeles or whatever. I'm competing with them or there's a training session that I want to give on. And so I'm being inspired or motivated through engagement to actually do that. It's not just that, that the bike is physically made better. It's that there's a community or engagement dimension to the bicycle. Yeah, but I bet I bet there's a community wrapped around one of those guitars behind you as well. And there I'm be- and I'm guessing and I'm guessing you're in a I'm guessing you're in a Facebook group or something. There's probably some way that you associate with people who have the same guitar in their in their man cave. Am I right? Sure. No, no question. No, no yeah. question about it. And and I don't know you know, I'm 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 reminded of the way that uh I was recently listening to um Clay Shirky has a Clay Shirky has an argument where he talks about the end, what he calls the end of the audience, end of the audience, end of audience theory. And it's the idea that we those of us who came from sort of the broadcast era think that there's an audience and there's no more of an audience there. Everybody sort of is creating 
we're all in the we're all in both the consumer and the producer posture all at the same time. Um, but would you feel better if you gave to an organization and all of a sudden part of that experience was you saw 47 other people that sort of were just like you that gave to that organization? I, th- I think so. Isn't that, isn't that kind of the point that we're sort of simmering on? Mm-hmm. Would that yeah. inspire you or, or, or give you some level of comfort that uh, there is a community here that looks like me that uh, would incur that, would make me want to give again because I'm part of this community. Give it because think about it today. What happens? And I, I'm, I'm generalizing. You give online, you get a receipt. Boom. You don't really know anybody that's given to the organization unless unless you're referred to the organization. But there could be, you know, we can do Facebook profiles and lookalikes and all these kinds of things. There could be 42 people that went to the same university as you did, or something else, or had some other thing in common with you that are given to that organization. Yeah, I, 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 I think I think one of the things that consistently I have consistently thought about for several, probably a good decade, I ran into some theory, probably in graduate school or something. Um, and some of this gets back to that idea of with Teal's competitive versus complementary technologies. Are guys like you going to continue to have thought provoking conversations like this that are actually going to cause you to constantly tweak and reinvent and very entrepreneurially sort of revise your thinking about the technology that you're creating to the point where the necessity of the fundraiser as it's currently defined going to become completely obsolete because you'll you'll take conversations like this you'll take you're not i have conversations like this with some fundraisers and they're going to take offense to it they're going to put up their fist right an entrepreneur is going to hear this conversation and say, "Okay, I'm going to keep tweaking. I'm going to keep. I'm going to keep inventing. I'm going to keep revising my thinking." Is that essentially what's going to keep happening with like these companies like yours, CRM companies, etc.? Uh, yes, because there's just you know, let's let's get really provocative here, but there's just some level of institutional inertia we can't do anything about. Right. Yeah, and it, it is what it is. I have a very provocative theory and another big idea that the only way we're going to break out and truly be disruptive is maybe, and you've seen a lot of them start and a lot of them fail and that's okay. But this idea of direct to to donor channels, as opposed to dependent upon the institution, because if you're a direct to donor channel, you can get super innovative around these kinds of things that we're talking about because you're not waiting on the institutional inertia of the nonprofit, right? We can build, we can build a model, a marketplace, offer all these kinds of features that were that are really kind of breakout features. We could say, hey, here's what's trending. Here's the community that's that's given to this organization. Here's the most popular things that you see today where we're not waiting for this nonprofit to kind of figure it all out. We're, we're again, obviously the funds will go back to the nonprofit and we'll channel those back and all that. But these direct to donor sort of paradigms give us one way to break out of this inertia and really do the things that you're talking about. Yeah. There's a guy, there's a guy in Los Angeles. You may know who I'm talking about. It's got an organization called the change, the change reaction. And what the change reaction is doing is just in Los Angeles. They're basically doing, it's a direct, it's what you're calling. It's, you know, it's, 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 he's basically taking the, uh, you know what he's doing, Ray? He's not doing anything a whole lot different. Last name's Perlman is the gentleman's name. What he's doing is, is he's taking, and he's the donor. 
The money's going directly to the people who need to buy the furniture, pay for the groceries, whatever. And he's not, he's not, he's doing exactly what uh, Carvana did when they sold me that my minivan out front. <laughs> Carvana basically eliminated the marketing and the sales department. They basically eliminated the sales and marketing operation. They basically said, as long as we've got a good inventory and as long as we've got a platform that works, we don't need sales and marketing. Yeah. You yeah, know, no, that's exactly, I, I, I think there's something to that. And, you know, Steve Jobs' famous quote is, I don't, I don't take surveys about products. I invent markets for products. And, and, and there's, there's something to that here of, of thinking about this is um, if we really want to be disruptive, and, and this isn't to slide any nonprofits or anything, but why wait on the nonprofits? I mean, we're going to send the money to them because that's who we are. That's what we care about. Um, and that's why we're doing that. But why not take all these principles that we've been talking about and just go, go Peter Thiel fast. Let's, let's build it. Let's build it out. Let's, let's show people what's trending. Let's show people which communities are given and supporting these particular organizations. And, and let's do all the things that we see in our, for-profit world uh, in the nonprofit world. And let's not continue to wait until somebody figures out what to do with the data that we're sending them. You know, I, I talk about, uh, you know, one of the organizations we work with provides data signals or audience signals to nonprofits. And one of the frustrations they have is there's this super rich information about donor signals, but they're still dependent upon the nonprofit to take those signals and do something with them. Yeah. You know, yeah. So what if, what if we invented a channel where we didn't have to wait and, and we just, we just went and, um, I yeah, yeah. You're talking about, so doc Searles, doc Searles was one of the authors. I've been looking at a lot of his stuff. So he was one of the authors in the glue train manifesto. And one of the things he talks about Ray is that during the 20th century, we we always assume, the vendor the vendor is always assumed that they would be in sort of the producer seat that they'd always be in the producer seat the controlling seat and that the consumer would always be in sort of the passive seat and what Searles talks about is the idea that now that we're moving into this hyper connected sort of environment that we're in and he's referring to CRM companies his his whole critique is basically CRM uh that's that's everything that Searles is looking at he says we're going to start seeing CRM companies who stop working with vendors and stop w- and start working for the actual customer and so you're going to have so instead of all these CRM platform platforms like in our world that are oriented towards the organizations you're going to have CRM platforms that are oriented towards the donor that's exactly right and this and we, this is a talk for another day, but I have a very strong provocative talk and it's not a slide to all my CRM friends, but to me, where I sit, I sit on top of the CRM. I'm, I'm the guy who connects to the donor. Yeah. I see, I see CRMs is just a black, they're just a black box to me, right? Yeah, That's just yeah. where I send data. And so I've always been amazed at being an outsider that came to this industry, you know, nine or 10 years ago as to why this whole industry is so database centric. It's crazy. You know, the ex- the experiences with the donor and, you know, that's where money is raised and everything. But we we're so database centric in this world. If you think about some of these consumer examples, uh, whether it's a weight loss app or whether it's a, whatever it is, a Peloton app, the database is, is hidden. It's, it's oblivious. It, it doesn't matter. It's where data is stored, but it's the experience 
I think we're going to win or lose based on the customer experience. In the case, in this case, the donor. Experience. Well, so so when I was going back to so I'm let's say let's say 25 years ago, I'm sitting in Dallas at a fundraising conference, and somebody oh. somebody's saying to me that baby boomers are going to have 25, you know, 12 to 25 nonprofits in their mailbox every every week, for example, whatever. It was some extreme number. I remember that very early, and different generations sort of we're assumed to have so many charities in their mailbox or inbox every week. And what, and what we're talking about here is, is, is not so much the CRM going out of business. What we're talking about is the CRM shifting loyalties to the donor rather than to the nonprofit. We're not talking about a completely innovative, um, you know, the nonprofit right now, the nonprofit right now assumes that the CRM is always in the, in it's always to it's always in it's a tool of theirs they always assume that the crm capability is theirs to be used and what searles is talking about is is that if we can if we can envision what he calls vrm so he it, rather than crm it's vrm and it's the idea that hey these crm companies might turn on the nonprofits and start helping the donor administrate their relationships with charities that can't get their act together yeah no i i i, I get it and again, that's where I think these direct to donor channels are interesting is the CRM takes on a completely different role then. Yes. And, uh, and, and um, it's more of a service to the, to the front end, if you will. So uh, where donors can come and do discovery and explore, uh, you know, what am I passionate? I mean, think about it. You, you download an app and you kind of walk through the first few steps. It's that, it's that sort of experience. What am I passionate about? You pick, pick from the list. You know, what do I care about? Blah, 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 blah. What's my goal? Do I want to give 2%? Do I want to give 10% this year? And you kind of complete your profile and the database should serve up to you things that things that may, meet your profile. And it should reinforce that as you go through the year. Oh, wait a minute. You're 72% of your goal. Uh, you may want to, you know, give to give another gift to this organization. So in that case, to, to your point, the database should serve up that experience and not just sit there and wait for me to send them a transaction, which is what I do. And what, what you're also seeing, and I, I'm working on this in the current book project, what you're, what you're also seeing is, is these donor advised funds. So the donor advised fund function, the way that relationship works with the donor now for the more affluent donor who's writing, who's not writing, who's not contributing, say, on a consistent weekly, monthly, sort of multi-times-a-year basis, but say on just an annual basis, they're essentially playing that intermediary in the relationship on the donor's behalf in the same way that we could see the CRM start to play that role for the much well, that, smaller donor. No question. And, and I'm familiar with a couple of donor-advised fund organizations that are doing some pretty innovative things. And and they're they're doing what I just said. They're starting to serve up you know, things to these to these people who have funds that are sitting there about how to give that. And you're, you're exactly right. They're playing that intermediate role. Yeah, but, yeah. That's a that's an interesting area that I think that uh, that we that could be disruptive and really move that de- needle that we've been talking about. 
So Gary, we uh, we always wrap up the conversation with uh, usually guys in your seat get more feedback. People reach out to you; they want to know about your product, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one of the questions I always like to ask, in addition to how do people find you, who is it the per- who's the person you actually want to hear from? So um, you can hear from a myriad. We got 150, 200 downloads a day. It's probably a lot of people that you know may or may not be interested in your product. Who amongst those 150 people do you want to hear from today? Well, I appreciate you asking that. We just got through releasing what we're calling inside kind of 2.0. And what we did, actually, we collaborated with Tim over at Next After. Yeah. What we did is we took all of our technology and we reorganized it to meet the needs of a digital marketer. So if there are organizations out there that have digital marketing staff, that have a digital marketing aptitude, that even maybe have a VP of marketing that's really savvy with digital with, with digital marketing, yeah, they're a really, really good fit for us. We, you know, we've even done things like built-in A/B testing in our product. You know, so you're you're not out there buying Optimizely and third-party products. We built a lab inside our product, so you can create a variant on the fly and test it, and look for that green arrow that shows you which one's performing better. So, the people that have that aptitude, sort of, that can answer that golden question about digital marketing, those are the people that really, really perform well. Otherwise. They'll just see us as an exercise bike or a transaction system, you know, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, we'll, and, and we'll become commoditized in their view if they don't appreciate the, the fact that we can enable digital marketing strategy inside our product. Yeah, that's an interesting way. And I appreciate the way you put that, uh, Ray, because I think that's and, 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 and there's a certain degree of sincerity that has to be sort of found for the sake of my listeners. You have to sort of see and understand what, what Ray's saying there, because um, Perhaps some of the fear um, is that your your services become commoditized. You become a commodity. If we're constantly in that shopping mode, I mean, if if we, we get sort of stuck in that shiny new object syndrome sort of rhythm, you yourself get part become that uh, that old exercise bike, and that's perhaps not what you want to be. I, I, I get a sense that's not who you want to be. No, there, there's a hundred solutions out there that'll process a. A Mastercard online. Right. That, that, that's not the business we're in. We're in the right. business of we, we want you to think about today's donor is important, and you're, that's going to be continued to grow. And things like retention and and all the. I, I like to say, if you want to run an online playbook, we have a platform that will enable or support that playbook. If you don't know what an online playbook is, there are tools out there that will process a Mastercard online. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I don't mean that to be negative. I just that's the kind of customer we're really, uh, you know, after and that we really add a lot of value to. Ray, it has certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. Well, thank you. It's great to be on. Nice to meet you. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. 
We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.